Well, hey everyone, good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here at Res City, and I just want to offer you a special welcome, whether it, uh, it is your first time joining us or not, uh, whether here in person or online, we're just very thankful to have you here worshiping with us on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. Um, I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll get our uh, sermon here uh, in the Song of Songs, our third sermon in this uh, little mini-series we're doing, uh, kicked off. Lord, we ask that you would guide us, you would give us wisdom as we study your word this morning, as part of the larger process of gathering here together on Sunday morning, to do what your people do and have done for, for centuries, Lord, um, on, on Sundays, gathering to worship, to take communion with one another, to fellowship, uh, and, to, and to, to hear from your word, to be spoken, of, uh, uh, be spoken to by, by you, by your son, by your spirit, and then to respond back to that. Help us as we do that this morning, as we enter into this time of understanding. Give us eyes and hearts to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So we are in our third series, like I said, our third sermon in this little mini-series that we've been doing in uh, the book of the Song of Songs. And this is actually part of a larger uh, series we've been doing this, this spring, kind of walking through the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And so we spent some time in the book of Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Job, and then we're finishing it off here with Song of Songs. We'll actually do a couple of sermons here uh, to wrap up that are going to be kind of one-off sermons, but still talking about how we apply wisdom in some very specific areas before we kind of move into our summer, our summer uh, sermon series. And what I want to do to start this week's sermon off is I want to actually take us back to something we talked about in the book of Proverbs. Um, and, and, and if you remember, if you uh, were with us when we were going through that sermon series, uh, we talked about different characteristics of foolishness that the book of Proverbs presents to us. And we're kind of told to uh, see and understand these so we ourselves can avoid uh, being influenced by these characteristics. And um, one of them that we talked about was what sometimes gets translated as the sluggard or uh, the lazy person, and really I think is best understood as sort of a, a level of apathy uh, towards getting out and doing work. And, and the commentator, one of the commentators we use for that series, a guy named Derek Kidner, says this about the, uh, the, the sluggard or the lazy person. They will not begin things, they will not finish things, and they will not face things. They have a hard time sort of following through, committing to do the hard work necessary to sort of bring about the certain result or purpose of wisdom. They're unwilling to be uncomfortable, ultimately. But at the end of the day, and this is something that is important to understand as well, is it's, it's not necessarily that they have no desire for anything, it's just that they just kind of want things to come to them, right? They kind of want it to be given to them, and you get a sense of an entitlement. And so in Proverbs 13, 4, uh, we, we read this, lazy people want much, but get little, uh, but those who work hard will prosper. So we see that the, the, the lazy person, the, the sluggard in Proverbs, does have a desire to get much, but wants to put in the least amount of work possible to receive it. And, and so... Um, and so they'll go along with something as long as it's easy and sort of putting in a, as much, you know, as little work as possible to kind of continue to get that result. And it looks like this, right? It looks like starting something, maybe finding out at a certain point, this is tougher than I thought, and then trying to figure out, well, maybe is there an easy fix to, to, to get this problem solved? And when they realize that that's not possible, then maybe they consider bailing, right? And hoping maybe next time it will be given to me. 
And I think, we, we, you know, we see this sometimes when it comes to um, health of our bodies, right? Uh, I think, you know, deep down we know that ultimately health comes from a sort of consistent pattern of exercising and eating healthy faithfully, consistently, and like you mean it, right? Like not kind of, um, kind of, kind of going half in, but really like, no, I actually like am kibbiting myself because I understand that, you know, this is what it takes, right? But a lot of times, you know, we wish there was some or, and a lot of people, I think, you know, literally go out and search for like diet pills, right? Or something you can take, like superfoods, right? Or these different things, like if I just eat this, like I, I will get a six pack eventually, right? Or the, the, the pounds will melt off, right? You see that kind of used in advertising sometimes for different products or pills, right? And, and ultimately, what, what that's kind of marketing towards is that desire within us for, you know, the full health to come easily, right? Without any work. And really, it just kind of becomes sort of magic thinking, right? But deep down, we know that the secret is that sort of consistent, faithful attitude, like you mean it, of eating healthy and exercising. Now, I think when we come to love and relationships, we find ourselves having this impulse in us a lot of times as well, right? We can go into marriage or a love, love relationship sort of wanting to be like the couple in Song of Songs, right? This couple that we've been observing for the last few weeks who are free, they're in love, they're intimate with one another. It, it seems, you know, like it comes easy to them. And, and we want that, right? We, we want to see that happen. But I think a lot of times we don't want to necessarily have to put in the work to find ourselves in a relationship like that. And our culture doesn't really do us any favors, unfortunately, when it comes to this. You know, when we watch movies and, and TV shows or whatever, like oftentimes love in, in, in what we watch or what we take in is sort of portrayed as this sort of magnetic force, right? Something that all you can really, that, that pulls two people together, right? It doesn't really require any work. It just requires kind of letting go. And magically, it all just sort of comes together for them. Right? And unfortunately, in movies, like at the end, they get together and we don't actually see what happens after that. But actually, it would be really helpful if we could find out what happens next, right? Because that's like the whole point of them coming together is for them to sort of live this out in a, some sort of relationship. That's, the, that's really the important part, I think, um, when we really, you really understand what, what, we're, what we're talking about here. And so instead of sort of hoping that love and sex and intimacy will come to us fully formed, right, like an overnight six-pack of abs that we might hope for, we, we find that, like Proverbs says, we have to work at it. And while true love does feel like that, right, like oftentimes there is an intense attraction to it, um, that is not the fullness of what love is. And it's important for us to have a full understanding of love and what it takes so that when we enter into relationships and we're living in them, we can continue to live in them well, right? We can continue to discipline ourselves to do the same things faithfully, consistently, and like we mean it so that, just like when it comes to a healthy body, our relationships can be healthy. And so Song of Songs talks about this. Um, and it talks about it, it kind of puts it this way when, when we get into it. This is kind of how I think Song of Songs talks about this idea. And we, we find in chapter two, verse 15, the woman is speaking and she says, catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love for the grapevines are blossoming. Now the big point here is this. 
Love is, is like a vineyard, right? There's sort of the, the love that is being described by them is a, is a vineyard. And we see that language throughout the book of Song of Songs, and we talked a little bit in our first sermon about how you know, this is sort of supposed to be seen as a return to the garden, right? A return to how it was supposed to be when, we, when God first created man and woman and they were living together in this sort of intimacy that was ultimately broken by the fall. So the, the man and the woman in the song are sort of recapitulating capturing or rediscovering or or redeeming, right, their broken intimacy that has come to all of us. And that's what the the book of Song of Songs is about. And we've used this sort of garden imagery a lot throughout this wisdom series to talk about, you know, faithfully planting and working in a garden to see fruit grow. And the goal is sort of to use wisdom to grow that. Now here's the thing, here's the problem in the book of Song of Songs is that there are these little foxes, little, little pests that can come in and rob you of the fruit of intimacy before you can get it. And so what, what, what the woman is saying here, and she kind of, you know, I think she, if I remember right, she's talking to, some, to, to the women of Jerusalem, her friends. What she's saying is if you want the intimacy, you have to learn to be a fox catcher. Okay, you have to, to learn what it takes to keep these pests out of the vineyard of your love. You have to learn um, habits and practices and be faithful and consistent in applying them to make sure that nothing is coming in to sort of steal the intimacy from you. So it takes work. If you don't do it, things will kind of come in and, and, and ruin what is, what is trying to be built by wisdom. And so we have to resist, again, going back to Proverbs, being a sort of sluggard, a, a lazy person when it comes to love. Okay, it takes intent and hard work to cause the vineyard to grow. So what we want to do today is we want to spend a little bit of time in a few different places in the Song of Songs talking about some foxes to be on the lookout for that can kind of come in and ruin the vineyard of love and that we can find the wisdom of Song of Songs. And these aren't necessarily things that will ruin a marriage, okay? I don't want to necessarily give you that idea, but they are things that will hinder the deep intimacy that we're experiencing here in the Song of Songs, the, the, the intimacy that we're designed to have. And if left unchecked, they certainly can snowball into very, very big issues. So it's important to be thinking about these things. What might seem like you know, one little fox that's coming in and is nibbling on the tomatoes can turn into a whole pack of foxes that are coming in and eating everything in there, okay? And I think it's good for us to be aware of it. And again, I don't, this, none, nothing we talk about today is any sort of secret magic pill that's going to you know, make your relationship amazing or perfect. It is a sort of alerting us to understand the discipline to do these same things, to look out for these things faithfully, consistently, and like we mean it, will help us to have the sort of relationship that is being discussed in the Song of Songs. So let's get into it. Now, you may have noticed, if you've kind of heard the first few sermons or you've read through the Song of Songs before, that um, there is this sort of intense passion that the man and woman have for one another, right? The kind that you, like, get a room, you two, right, when you read it. Um, and that's what they're trying to do. They're actually, they're trying to, to get together, right? They're trying to find a space to be intimate with one another. And so we've, we find stuff like this. And I won't put it on the screen here because we read it in our first sermon. But uh, the woman is speaking here and she says, kiss me and kiss me again for your love is sweeter than wine. How pleasing is your fragrance. Your name is like the spreading of fragrance of scented oils. No wonder all the w- young women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. 
right? We just feel the passion sort of dripping off of those words when we read that, right? You can sense that sort of strong affection, this passion that the two have for one another. And I think that's the first thing to sort of highlight here. The first fox that can come in and ruin the garden is this, that there is no fuel that is being given consistently to the passion in the relationship, Now, relationships typically start on a full tank of passion and excitement and and joy and love for one another, right? But lots of times, like, that, that runs out of steam, okay? Once you get into a marriage, once you sort of get into being with one another, you find that that stuff doesn't just happen naturally anymore. The excitement, the thrill, the spark sometimes can sort of go away, And I think, you know, it's like a car, that stuff is only going to carry you as long as you're keeping the car fueled, right? I think sometimes we might think that, like, the fuel is the thing that drives the car, but but really, like, it's us fueling that consistently to allow that thing to carry us, right? And, And love is like that, too. We have to sort of be consistently stopping for gas, consistently putting the right fuel into the relationship in order to keep that sort of passion, that affection, that joy for one another around, or at least keeping it operating at a full level to really kind of carry us on in the way that the song talks about. Okay, yes, the, the passion does quicken the love, okay? But it won't do that if you're not willing to put, put gas into it. And, and that looks like, in love and relationships, putting in time, uh, effort, and thought and intention really into the love and passion that you have, right? And I know that, like, for those of you who have been married for a long time, I think you probably get this. You kind of understand what I'm saying here. You know that that sort of crush can kind of come and go, but there are ways in which that we can sort of help that thing to help to continue to keep that running strong, right? It takes intention. And this includes, first of all, kind of obviously, physical intimacy, right? Talking about sex. And there are actually a lot of studies that show that consistent sex really does contribute to healthy marriages, right? And we, we talked, talked about this before in the series, that sex is really a tool in the relationship for the purpose of building deeper intimacy, right? That's how, that's how it's designed, is to kind of create that oneness. And if it's not something that's happening consistently, that intimacy is going to be more difficult to find. But there's a lot more than that too, okay? I don't want you to necessarily think that's the only thing that contributes to it. So you notice how Often, and this happens in each section of the Song of Songs, the couple speaks of the desirability of the other, right? They reflect to them how strong their desire is for the other. And they speak of them in such glowing terms, such sort of, um, you know, beautiful language to describe one another. They're describing how much they desire the other. And it's playful, it's flirty, it's sort of abundant and showering the other, right? It it might make some people uncomfortable almost, but it's it's a good thing to sort of reflect that to the other so that they know that. Because this kind of has two things, I think, that happen with it. First of all, it just reminds you as you speak it that this is actually how you feel about them, right? It's good to remind yourself how you view them and to verbalize that and say that out loud. And, And then the other thing it does is it reminds the other, right? It lets them know that they don't have to question whether or not you still find them attractive, you still desire to be around them, you still find their qualities as something that they love and admire and adore about you, right? 
These qualities can be told in lots of different ways, right? It can be found in fun, intentional ways like love notes. It can be intentional time of literally just, we're gonna carve out time. I'm gonna put some thought into this. You're gonna put some thought into this. And we're gonna share five things we really love about each other over a nice meal, right? Stuff like this is really um, important, I think, to sort of reflect back um, to the other. And, And here's the thing, right? The, when we talk about covenant, when we talk about the, the type of love the Bible is calling us towards, we're talking about a, a covenant that is, says it's unconditional, right? It says, I'm with you no matter what. And so I think sometimes, and I'm guilty of this for sure, I'm guilty of all the things I'm talking about today, all right? And it was actually a little convicting to write this these last couple of weeks, but um, what, what, what you find is that you know, Julia has said things to me before, like, I just want to know that you, you know, feel this way about me, right? Or I want to know that you appreciate me. And I'm like, well, you should know that for sure, because I married you, and I told you I'm going to always love and appreciate you. And it's a good reminder to think, well, you know, your spouse should never have to wonder if you actually mean those things that you said at that one point, Okay, but I think we leave the other wondering sometimes in a way that we really need to be consistent to not let them do, right? Yes, the other is supposed to trust you in, in those things, but let's help them out, huh? Let, let's help the other out sometimes so that they don't have to wonder as much. Okay, so that's the first one. Let's move, let's move on here and, and we'll move, go to a passage in Song of Songs 3 where there's a couple of different um, ones. And actually, Julie preached on this passage last week, so we're going to return back to it. Song of Songs 3, we're going to do verses 1 to 4. So first of all, verses 1 and 2. This is the young woman speaking. She says, One night as I lay in bed, I yearned for my lover. I yearned for him, but he did not come. So I said to myself, I will get up and roam the city, searching in all its streets and squares. I will search for the one I love. So I searched everywhere, but I did not find him. And then um, she continues on here in verses three and four. The watchmen stopped me as they made their rounds and I asked, have you seen the one I love? Then I scarcely had left them when I found my love. I caught and held him tightly and brought him to my mother's house, into my mother's bed where I had been conceived. So what we find is she's, she's in bed one night and she's yearning, she's desiring to be with, with the young man, right? But she's not with him, he's not there with her, right? So she has to go and seek him out. And at first she can't, right? And she is, she's finding that the sort of intimacy that she desires cannot happen when he's not there. Now that seems like common sense, right? But I think that this is actually helpful for us to really dig in and find a certain fox to, to, to be looking into, okay? And so that's the second one, physical and emotional unavailability, okay? Physical and emotional unavailability. The big point here is that intimacy can't happen when, because the guy isn't there in the passage, right? And, and again, it seems like common sense that you can't have intimacy without both people there, but it's actually really important that we remember that because it's super easy to forget the importance of actually showing up and being there, right? Being actually there, fully there, right? Because when the woman desires that intimacy, she can't do it because she can't find him. And this creates this loneliness, a one-sided desire for intimacy. 
Now, this can happen in physical absence, right, where maybe one person is working all the time. They're never around, okay? Or both people are always out with, with friends or, or doing their own hobbies kind of separately, right? They're always with family, whatever it is. They're never around each other in sort of intentional, intimate, forward-facing ways, okay? This, is, this certainly can happen. And if you've ever been in a long-distance relationship, for any period of time, you understand how important this is, right? But I think we can sometimes find ourselves in, you know, kind of semi-long distance relationships even when we're living in the same space, right? So we have to be on the lookout for that happening to us as we fill our schedules up, right? As we find ways to keep ourselves busy. This is an important thing to be thinking about. Okay, but sometimes one person in the marriage is absent, not maybe physically, but emotionally. Emotionally, they're unavailable to the other, and they can't be found, right? And so one person is like the woman in this story where she's yearning to be with the other, but they can't because emotionally the other one is unwilling to sort of connect with them, okay? One is absent. One won't invite the other in, and when that happens, intimacy is impossible, okay? One person will feel alone in, their, in marriage, okay? Um, and, and this can really have a damaging sort of long-term effect uh, on the other, right? And sometimes both end up being unavailable too, okay? And I think that, that, that obviously is a recipe for disaster as well. But this emotionally being there, I think, is incredibly important. And we skip over that, I think, a lot of times. Now, there's lots of ways in which that this can manifest. It's important to understand the ways in which that can sort of crop up inside of a relationship, okay? It can happen maybe when one person sort of hurts the other, right? Um, and, and the one who is hurt might start to build up barriers, right? To not let the other into certain parts of their life for fear of being hurt, okay? It sort of becomes a self-defense mechanism where they either feel they, they can't tell the other that they're hurt, or they feel they'll be dismissed or something. Now, obviously, both people in the couple in the relationship have some work to do to figure that out, but I think that happens a lot of times as a way to sort of feel safe, right? It is, to love at all is vulnerable, right? Uh, to, to, to put yourself out there, to, to be known and fully known is gonna allow you to be hurt, okay? And we are gonna be hurt in relationships, okay? That's just a... a a factor of relationships, the only way you're not going to be hurt is if you choose to be completely emotionally unavailable to the other, right? We have to be willing to open ourselves up and be hurt because when we are willing to open ourselves up in that way, that's when true intimacy starts to flow back and forth. Now, another way that this can happen is where one person really sort of just struggles with emotional intimacy. And to be honest, I think men right? If we're being honest, this is typically a bigger struggle for us. Not always. This is not true of all relationships, but men are often going to be, times going to be the one who's a little bit more emotionally unavailable, okay? And so what happens is one is pushing for this emotional intimacy, but they feel like the other doesn't care. There's no reciprocation coming, okay? They're choosing to withdraw their feelings. They're freezing the other person out when they share intimately, right? And all this leads to loneliness. It feels like for the one that they don't want to be, they, they don't care to be known. They don't care to know the other, okay? And, and then maybe when feelings do come out, they come out in a way that's super unhealthy, right? Super passive aggressive or, you know, shared with some intent maybe, maybe actually to harm the other, right? That's the only time that you get a glimpse into what they're feeling, right? Uh, and, and that is obviously going to have a corrosive effect on the, on the relationship, 
And so what we have to do is we have to make a habit of consistently sharing our emotions or thoughts in order to be known. Okay, that's the whole point of intimacy is, is trusting the other with who you are and really going and back to the garden where you're, we're naked and unashamed, right? We're naked emotionally and unashamed of it with the other person. That's the, the, the description that is given to us in the garden. Now, I just want to run through a couple more examples here of emotional unavailability. This is taken from a Psychology Today um, uh, article. Um, and so if you want to take a picture of this or something, I won't dig into these super deep, but it's important to understand, I think, to see these because these do certainly crop up. So one is to use flattery rather than sincere openness to connect, right? It sort of has the appearance of emotional connection when it really isn't, okay? It's not really opening up. Okay, maybe it's openly acknowledging that they aren't good at relationships. Like, this is kind of a thing a lot of times people will use as a way to not have to engage is to say, well, I'm not very good at it, so um, yeah, sorry, what do you want me to do? Okay, that's sort of a, a way to get out of actually doing the thing you're supposed to do in a relationship. Um, constantly looking for flaws in others so that they can find reasons to avoid closeness. Okay, so looking for, you know, oh, well, you, you would just do this if I told you how I actually felt. Okay, that, 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 that can happen a lot of times. Um, maybe it's anger when they're unable to deflect the other person's desire for closeness. Um, and then just general evasiveness rather than openness. Now, the way to combat this, right? I wish I had some magic diet pill to give you here, right? I wish there was some 30-day to beach body for, for fixing this, but there isn't, okay? It really is simple but also complex, and it takes that sort of willingness to, to learn to do this well, okay? First off, you have to admit that there is a problem of intimacy, that there is emotional unavailability going on, and that's the most important step is acknowledging there's a problem. Even if you're not good at it, Okay? Even if you're not wired that way, you're, you, you can't use that as a reason to not emotionally engage because my spouse is good at it, but I'm not. Okay? No, you both need to be good at it. And one might be naturally better at sharing their feelings and articulating how they feel, but that doesn't get you off the hook for having to learn to do it well with your spouse. Okay? I'm just going to say that. Second, you have to learn from someone else who is better at it than you how to you know, learn to sort of grow in that area, like learning how to share, learning how to open up, learning how to identify your own feelings in yourself so that you can know yourself better so that you can be known by the other. And oftentimes your spouse, if you're a spouse like this who struggles with this, the number one person to teach you how to do it well is your spouse who is actually good at it. Learn from your spouse. I have learned a ton from Julie about how to uh, identify my own feelings and share them with her well, okay? And uh, it's like marriage has been kind of a master class. And now I'm amazing at it. I have no problems whatsoever. Um, not necessarily true, but I have grown a ton from that, right? Sometimes it can come from having a friend, talking to a pastor, right? Maybe talking to a therapist, just someone who's going to help you learn how to unlock that and let it flow, flow freely with your spouse to intimacy. And the third way to do it is to make it habitual, okay? To take whatever you've learned and to make sure it happens on a consistent basis, right? If you run for a week, that's not actually going to make you that much of a healthier person. You have to run every week. You have to do it consistently, okay? It's the same with this. 
Now let's move to the third fox. This actually comes from that same passage again. Let me, let me read it here, okay? One night as I lay in bed, I yearned for my lover, I yearned for him, but he did not come. So I, get, I, I said to myself, I will get up and I will roam, and let, let's pay attention here, the city, searching all its streets and squares. I will search for the one I love, all right? Now, the city is an important sort of concept in the book of Song of Songs. And I'm going to read from a, uh, from a commentator on the Song of Songs here. Um, j- bear with me here. It's not too long, um, but it tells us the, the role that the city plays in the book. Okay, this is Tremper Longman. He says that the city is a place hostile to intimate relationship, particularly when compared with the safety and privacy of the bedroom. After all, the city, especially the street and the public square, is a place teeming with people, hardly conducive to romance. Even at night, when the crowds are not as large, the city is a hostile location. Now, I grew up in a small town in northern Minnesota, and I you know, moved to Fargo, which is you know, much bigger than the town I lived in, and then I moved down here, which is much bigger than Fargo. So it's kind of been a growing experience for me to sort of, you know, you know, the concept of wide open spaces where I can see the stars at night, right, and I have space, right, where there, there's not constant honking of horns and everything, that's actually been a little, a little bit of a challenge for me as I've moved to the city, right? And so maybe if you've lived in the city your whole life, maybe you don't understand the amount to which the city really does just sort of impact every single thing you do, but when you live in a smaller place, you know, you kind of get a sense for the contrast between them. And the, the, the book of Song of Songs is sort of uh, building that contrast for us here. And so this third fox to be look, looking out for is letting the city, okay, the symbolic idea of the city, intrude into intimacy, okay? Intimacy is reserved for the couple. The public intrudes into that intimacy, okay? And, and the city here can be lots of things. It can be the actual city, but, but really it's anything that sort of taps us into the public square, the city street, where there's everything else is going on, where it is teeming with other people, other stuff is going on, other concerns, other issues will sort of pull your attention away from the intimacy of the relationship. And at its heart, it's really it's other spaces that we can be pulled to be living in in the moment which make intimacy impossible. Now I wanna talk today about one way in which the city comes to us. And literally anywhere you're at, the city is, is right there in your hands. And that's through our phones, okay? Think about the way in which the phone sort of connects us to so much else going on in the world. It sort of pulls us into other spaces. And I think a lot of times we think, you know, this is, you know, this is not gonna be a big factor in me. I can, I can turn my phone off whenever I want to. But the stats say otherwise, okay? And I found this stat, this was a very interesting, I don't know, interesting in the very Minnesota way of using interesting. Like, it was very interesting to read this, um, okay? But 10% of people check their phones during sex. Okay, and actually it's higher among millennials, which most people in this room are millennials. It's 17% check their phones during sex, which I can't, it's kind of an insane thought to have necessarily, but it's actually not that crazy when you think about it, okay? Think about the ways in which if you are married or you're in a, you know, a very uh, strong relationship right now, Think about the ways in which you are pulling your phone out in times that should be reserved for intimacy building, right? Whether it's around meals, 
dates you're in, walks you're going on, whatever it is, car rides that you're on, whatever it is, the phone is always sort of there and is always sort of pulling for your attention, okay? And re- really, it's, it's a gateway to the public square. It's a gateway to another space where other people are, are teeming around and other stuff is going on that is sort of drawing your attention. And so these push notifications that we get really are pushing their way into the intimacy of the relationship. Now, I know for me, and again, I'm not going to say anything in this, this sermon today that I don't myself struggle with. And I actually really, the phone is, really bothers me. It, it drives me insane when there's a little red circle. I have an iPhone, right? So when there's a little red circle on the top of an app, I go bananas. I cannot stop thinking about it. I want to eradicate all those little red circles, okay, no matter what. And, 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 and when, a, when a push notification comes into my phone, right, when my phone lights up, I think, I'll just respond to this super quick. I'll just see what that is, okay? And then I'll go right back to Julie. And that never happens, right? Like, I'm, now I'm thinking about whatever I just saw, whether it's a text or an email or an update about the twins losing again, whatever it is, okay? I'm getting drawn into that now. And, and, and it extends into the night a lot of times. And I, so whatever it is, right, it, it can be, because there are so many ways to connect with people through our phones, which again, it's a gift, it's amazing. There are also so many ways for our attention to be drawn in, whether it's um, text threads or just texts in general, whether it's news notifications, whether it's tweets or Instagram or Facebook, whether it's sports news, right, sports updates, Fantasy, sports, whatever it is, there's so many ways in which our phones can pull our attention to the public square out of the intimacy of, this, of, the, of the vineyard of, of what is supposed to be being built up between a, a relationship between two people. And it sort of fills, um, fills, us, fill, fill, fills uh, the, the, the bubble of our intimacy with cracks, with holes, right? Where, where the intimacy starts to leak out of them, okay? And we're supposed to protect that and guard that. Now, this doesn't, like... This doesn't mean never check your phone. I'm not telling you to get rid of your phones. I'm just telling you to learn how to put boundaries on it, to learn to put your phone in another room for a night or for the date or put, keep it in your pocket, right? Wh- whatever it is, like figure out how to do that. And what, what that means is, is it's this. Uh, there was actually one point in our marriage where I really realized the issue I was having with, with not just my phone but just you know, other stuff kind of pulling in. I thought... You know, when we had been dating, we had to do all this work to be together, right? We had to drive and meet each other somewhere, right? Like, it it took a lot of work. And I thought, well, when we're married, we'll always be around each other. So intimacy will just happen, okay? And I don't necessarily need to schedule time to be with Julie because I'm going to see her every night. I'm going to, right? At some point, I'll see her and we can, that intimacy will just happen there. So I did fill my schedule pretty full. And one night, Julie was like, man, I feel like I'm getting all of your scraps, okay? I feel like you're not actually setting up any time for us. And I realized, like, I can't just assume it's gonna happen. That's that kind of magical diet pill thinking I'm talking about. I actually have to set aside time in my schedule for it or else it's not gonna happen. You've heard the sort of, I don't know, there's a couple ways you hear this analogy. The ice cube analogy, right? You have a cup, of wa- a cup with ice cubes in it and then the water fills around it or maybe it's like rocks and sand, right? And it's kind of like, what are the big rocks you gotta put in there and you gotta make sure they're in there and then let the sand fill up around it? For me, Intimacy was the sand. It, I put the other rocks in there, work and friendships and sports and all these other things. Those were my rocks, and I figured I'd let intimacy be the sand. No, no, no. 
Intimacy has to be a rock, okay, or an ice cube. It cannot be the sand or the water filling in around that stuff, okay? Because really what that is all doing is sort of pulling us into some other thing, the city intruding into the space of our intimacy. And there's a time and a place for all that stuff, right? I'm not telling you to have one rock in your cup and it's just intimacy. But I am saying if you don't have that in there as a pretty significant rock, it's going to be a hindrance to the intimacy if you're not aware of that. Okay, let's move on to our last fox here today. And we find this in Song of Songs, um, uh, chapter 5, verse 16. So the, the woman is speaking. She says, Such a woman of Jerusalem is my lover, my friend. Now, notice what she calls him here. She says, my lover, right? But she also says, my friend, okay? And this is important. Tying these th- two things together is super important because it shows us how she views the relationship, okay? And so this is our second fox, that I, or sorry, our fourth fox, our last fox that I want to talk about is no sort of foundation of what I'm calling friendship love in the relationship, Okay? I think sometimes, you know, when we talk about love in our society, we're talking about, again, that sort of animal magnetism, right? Erotic love. Maybe if you're, if you're speaking in, like, you know, the, the different uh, words for love in ancient Greek, there were all these different words to describe it. Erotic love is what we mean a lot of times when we talk about a lover, right? But, and so we might think, well, the greatest form of love is shown in PDA, right? That's, that's what we mean by love. Okay, now, biblically speaking, uh, that's, not, that's not the greatest form of love. The greatest form of love is this, and Jesus says this in John 15, 13. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Okay, what he's saying is that instead uh, of being built on erotic love, uh, love the, great, the, the foundation of friendship, okay, is what we need to have in a relationship because that is the greatest form of love. Okay, it, it, it transcends all other versions of love. And so we ought to think of romantic relationships, I would say, as a species of friendship. Okay, you know how you get into the animal kingdom and you have these different sort of um, species of animals that kind of come under the umbrella of a larger gene. I looked it up and I thought I, there was like two or three. There's like 10 words in this phylum genus species, whatever it is. You people who know science know what I'm talking about better, right? But think of friendship as like a species of, uh, of uh, 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 sorry, romantic relationships as a species of friendship love. It's a very specific kind of friendship love, but it, that is still the, way, the, the thing that love is premised on is friendship, okay? And so we, we, we operate this love all the time. It's not just in romantic relationships. It's with the people in this room here. It's with family of ours. It's with other friends that we have, okay? That's, that's love, and then we apply it in a specific way in romantic relationships, and so a lot of time, relationships suffer because no friendship has ever been developed, right? Lots of time, relationships are sort of built on the passion of the sort of erotic magnetism that they have towards each other, and they get into the relationship and they realize, we're not really friends. You know, it's really hard for us to build intimacy with one another because there's no real friendship that this is founded on. And the reason that that's important is because, like Jesus says, friendship is this greatest form of love. Now, what do friends do? Well, what does this look like? Well, friendship is a mutual concern for the well-being of the other, right? It's sharing interests with the other person. 
It's intentional. It's thinking about each other. It's carving out time together, right? It's planning time to be with one another. It's about making memories and experiences with the other person, right? Think about the great friendships you had growing up, right? You have all these stories that you tell when you hang out together, right? Marriage has to include that too, right? That has to be intentional. It's sharing deeply about themselves. Again, think about the deep friendships you've had in your life. Think about how much those friends know about you, okay? That's what marriage is supposed to look like too. It, there's an, a, an understanding that a commitment towards each other is unique, right? When you have a, you think, think about this, in a high school or, or wherever, when you had a good friendship with somebody, you thought of that person as different than everyone else around you. That's, that's what friendship looks like. It's sort of um, a unique commitment to one another that is fixed on that person, where deep emotional bonds are formed, where there's this attachment to one another that really, even though it includes the physical attraction and the physical side of relationships, there's something a lot more to it than that as well. Okay, that's, that's friendship. And then crucially, okay, and going back to John 15 here, friends give themselves up for each other according to Jesus and in the way that he models for his friends. Okay, that is the greatest form of love is giving yourself up for your friends. And marriage requires a giving up for the other. Okay, so often we think of love and we're talking about it as this sort of, in this erotic passion way. We're, we're, it's centered on a feeling. It's centered on something we get out of it, right? But friendship love is not at, about what you get out of it. It's about what you're giving to it. And marriage has to have that foundation on it, okay? Uh, when there's no vision or need to give oneself up, friendship love is not what the relationship is founded on, okay? And when friendship love is secured, both partners will find that they're willing to sacrifice for the other happily, and that's where the enjoyment comes from, right? It's not like you're committing yourself to a life of, you know, service where you don't get anything. It's mutual giving up of one another for the better of the other, and that's what marriage looks like, and that's friendship love, you guys, Okay? And so seeing your lover as your friend is a way to scare off many, many, many little foxes. Lord, I uh, thank you that you have given yourself up for us in your son so that we might have a model of what it looks like to love one another. Whether that's in regular relationships, Lord, day-to-day relationships, whether it's with friends, coworkers, uh, other family members, or when it's in our romantic relationships. Lord, um, help us to love like your son on that foundation of friendship, that greatest form of love that there is. Lord, help us to do that with each other in our marriages and in our other relationships so that we may be more like your son, Jesus, and we may experience the, the, the joy, the, the power that comes from your love spilling into our space now, Lord, in whatever form that might take for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.